0: You're listening to audio from Mercy Hill Church of Port Austin. To learn more about us, you can visit mercyhillpa.org. We've made it. We are past the halfway point in Hebrews. And actually in a couple weeks, I want to give you a little handout, a little printout of all the outlines in case you missed a week. If you have your scripture journal, you can fill in on the different outlines. But here we are in chapter 7. And not only have we reached the halfway point in this book, we've also finally reached the chapter where he's going to explain Melchizedek. And so for the three of you that are really curious about that, um, we are going to unpack that today. Uh, you like how I just lifted it as this big thing and you're like, yeah, I haven't really, I haven't been looking forward to that at all. But he, he introduced it earlier in the book and then he said, I'm gonna go explain this. And then he said, but before I explain this, I've got to talk to you guys for a while. And, and so the end of chapter five and chapter six were all about them and how they need to persevere, how they need to grow, how they need to take their faith seriously. And now he's just going to jump right back into the topic of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned twice in the Old Testament. In Genesis 14, we see the story of it where, where Abraham, after he slaughters a bunch of kings, um, he goes and he meets this guy named Melchizedek, who's both a king and a priest, which was really strange. Um, but then we, we find him again in Psalm 110, where David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, promises that there's going to be a future king priest who's going to come in the order of Melchizedek. And that's pretty much it. And so the Jewish rabbis just were, were just going crazy trying to figure out who is this Melchizedek guy. It was this big debate in theology of, in the Old Testament. Like, who is this Melchizedek guy? And, and here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the author of Hebrews is going to explain to us who he is. And, and what he's going to do, really, is offer a commentary on both Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 and show that Melchizedek is superior to the Levites or the Aaron priesthood. If you're like, what's that? That's the priesthood that most of the Jews would have been understanding as the true priesthood of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi was designated as the tribe that would be the priests for Israel. They would be the mediators between the people and God. And if you remember, we talked about this in chapter two, the role of the priest was to represent the people before the Lord. So you didn't just go directly to God. As a Jew in the Old Covenant. You had to go to a priest. He would offer a sacrifice on your behalf. He would pray on your behalf. And then he would go to God for you. And he was this mediator between you and God. And man, aren't you thankful that we don't have to do that anymore? We don't have to go through a man. We go through Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. Um, But the author here now is going to say those priests, those Old Testament priests, the Levites, that they were in the order of Aaron. Okay, those priests... They're actually not as good as Melchizedek. And the priest Jesus, who he's going to draw our attention to, doesn't come in the order of those priests. He comes in the order of Melchizedek. So it's a really simple argument. He's basically taking Melchizedek and the Levites and saying, this guy's better. And since Jesus comes from this guy, his priesthood is better. And by the way, there's a bunch of other things that make him better. And so it's a really awesome little passage. And it would be particularly relevant to this group of Christians who are considering... They have become Christians, but because of pressure, because of inward pressure, outward pressure, social pressure, they're considering, should we just go back? Should we just go back to the old covenant, go back to Judaism, go back to what we're familiar with? I mean, they've got, they've got this temple, and they've got these priests, and they've got these, I mean, they've got history behind them. And I'm in this new thing called Christianity, and they're starting to doubt. They're starting to wonder, should I just go back? And so over and over and over through the book, he's going to say, no, 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 Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than all of that stuff. And I love how Mark Dever illustrated the priests in the Old Testament compared to Jesus. He said the priests in the Old Testament were like candles, but Jesus is like the sun. And to go to the priests in the Old Testament would be like lighting a candle in broad daylight to light your path instead of using the sun. That's that's how superior Jesus is to these Old Testament priests. They were shadows, Jesus is the substance. They were pointers. Jesus is what they were pointing to, right? If you, if you were driving on vacation and you get to the little sign that says, welcome to Florida, and, and, and you drove into town you said, you know, let's just go back and hang out by the sign for a while. That would be foolish, right? The sign is pointing you to something greater. And these Old Testament priests are pointing us to Jesus, something much greater. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at seven specific ways that Jesus is a better priest today. And you're like, Seven? Seven, seven points? Are you sure, Pastor? Yes, we're going to do seven. Um, we are going to go through them quickly. But before we do, we actually have to ask a preliminary question. So we actually have eight points today. Um, we have to ask, who's Melchizedek? All right, you're like, are you going to tell us or not? Okay, who is Melchizedek? So let's look at verses one through three, where the author explains this for us. He says this, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. By the way, that's a really cool story in the Old Testament where Abraham just like kicks these kings' butts. Like it's awesome, okay? So go read it. It's like a really cool story. But he, he's on his way back from slaughtering like all these kings. Like what a boss. And, and he meets this guy named Melchizedek, okay? And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So he pays tithes to this priest, King Melchizedek. He, Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so what is going on here? Well, I see five things that help us identify who this guy is. First of all, he is is a king. Specifically, the king of righteousness and peace. And so Melchizedek is a king. Okay, that's easy. We can check that off. A uh, king of righteousness and peace, which is a pretty awesome title. Next, he's a priest. Now, this is really unusual because in the Old Testament, the office of king and priest were separate. You wouldn't do them together. In fact, one guy did try to do them together. If you remember, Samuel or uh, Saul didn't wait on Samuel, and he offered the sacrifice instead of waiting for the priest. He was the king. He wasn't supposed to do that, and his kingdom got stripped from him for it. Okay, so the king and the priest are separate, and yet here they're together. Melchizedek is king and priest. Third, he's a historical figure. So he's a guy that actually met Abraham in person after the slaughter of the kings. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham tied to him. Fourth, this is where things get a little strange. He's without father or mother or genealogy, and he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, I'll talk more about that in a second, but Notice one more truth about Mel here, okay? And I'm going to shorten it for Mel, uh, the rest of the sermon, okay? (laughs) Lastly, he is one who resembles the Son of God by continuing as a priest forever. Did you see that in verse 3? He resembles the Son of God, okay? So this is quite the list. And wherever you land on who Mel is, he's a pretty cool dude, okay? In fact, um, he is a king priest with no parents, genealogy, beginning of days, or end of life. Quite the resume, right? Like, I would hire him here at Mercy Hill. I mean, he'd he'd fit right in. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so he's a really cool guy, but this has led to a lot of questions. Okay, specifically, no beginning, no end, no parents, no genealogy. What's going on here? And so it's actually led some theologians to come to the conclusion that this is actually a theophany or a Christophany, if you're wondering, what is that? Basically, Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. You're like, that didn't help. Let me explain that, okay? <laughs> Jesus, when he incarnated, became flesh, okay? The, the eternal son of God became flesh, became man, and, and, and lived this life, okay? Before his incarnation, before he became flesh, um, he would appear certain times in the Old Testament. And they believe that this might be one of those pre-incarnate appearances. That's what some think, okay? I mean, there are other examples of these appearances, like the burning bush, God appearing in the form of a bush, okay? And so so this happens. Theophanies and Christophanies happen in the Old Testament. However, as I study this, I actually believe he is just a type of Jesus. Now, type is a technical word in, in understanding the Bible and how it is all put together, but a type is basically to simplify it for you. It's a pointer to something else, okay? So let me give you a few examples of types in the Old Testament. First of all, the ark, that that uh, noah had to build okay think of this picture for us for you okay god says it's going to rain he's going to destroy the entire earth but those who are in the ark will be saved from the wrath of god in the storm what is that a picture of jesus that those of us who put our faith in what god says is going to happen we put our faith in jesus we're rescued from the coming storm of god's wrath that's a type of christ another one is the bronze serpent Remember the bronze serpent that, that Moses lifts up in the wilderness? And those who look to him live. They're healed from their diseases. And Jesus himself says, that was pointing to me in John 3. Um, another one is Jonah. Um, we love that story, right? Where he, he's running from God and he jumps into the ocean and he's there for three days and three nights. And there's this resurrection that happens. That's a type or a pointer to Jesus. And we could go through all these examples. I mean, how cool is it that the entire Old Testament is all about Jesus? Okay. But what we do, what we get to this is we see Melchizedek acting in a similar way as a type or a pointer to Jesus. Now, you might be like, well, what do you do with those God-like descriptions of him? Okay? Well, I believe these unique characteristics are not historical arguments about him as a person, but textual arguments about his role in the scriptures. Okay? So you're looking at Genesis, and it's a book full of genealogies this guy begat, this guy begat, this guy begat. It's that that part in the Bible reading plan where you kind of start to skim. All right, come on, be honest. You skim a little bit. You're like, I don't even know how to pronounce these names. (laughs) I'm just going to, you know, but we come to this guy. He's got no genealogy, got no parents. He just shows up and then he's gone. And so I think he's making a textual argument. The text itself actually by the Holy Spirit told Moses, don't include any of that. Just have him show up. Have him leave. And then later, he says, hey, David, I need you to write something down. David, write this down. And David writes, there's coming a priest king after the order of Melchizedek. And so in his role in the scriptures, Melchizedek, who was a historical person, I believe, is used by the Holy Spirit to point us to Jesus, this priest king, who's going to come not from the Levites, but from the tribe of Judah after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. It's a pretty cool argument. Now, if you're completely lost and you have no idea what I just said, just come talk to me afterwards, but we've got to, we've got to keep going because remember we've got seven points. So here's what you need to know though, about all this. Okay. Wherever you land on the Melchizedek thing, you need to know this, that he is pointing us to Jesus. And that the point of this passage is that Jesus is a greater priest. He's greater than the Levites. And the reason, one of the key reasons he's greater is because he comes in the line of Melchizedek. And so let's look at those seven ways that Jesus is a better high priest. The first one is that Jesus has a better priesthood. And by that, he means he comes from a better line. He comes from Melchizedek, not from Levi. Okay, look at verse four. It says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a 10th of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So what is going on here? Well basically what he's saying is seeing he's saying in the old covenant the Jews would pay tithes. They would pay a tenth. Um, actually if you add it all up, it was about 30%. Um, but they would pay this tenth of their income to to help the priests basically live off of that. Okay? And so it was this tithe that they paid. And what he's saying is here, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And since the Levites came from Abraham, you could almost say that the Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek, making him the greater. And not only that, he says, all of you know, he, I love how he just puts it, he's like, it's beyond dispute. Like, I don't even need to argue this, that the superior always blesses the inferior. What does he mean by that? The, the greatest person in Old Testament history, basically, if you asked a Jew, was Abraham. Like he's the guy, he's the OG. He's the one that God gave the promises that started this whole thing off. He's the one that was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Like he is the guy in the Old Testament eye. And so for them to think, if you were to just bump into someone on the street, I heard a a professor um, illustrated this way. I thought it was really helpful. He said, imagine being a Jew. If you could answer this question, pick one person from the Old Testament who could bless you. They'd be like, oh, Abraham, for sure. And so you you said, imagine being a Jew and you bump into Abraham and you say, I'm going to pronounce a blessing on you. That would be like, whoa, you don't do that. The inferior is never going to bless the superior. It always comes that way. And so that's his argument. He's saying that Melchizedek actually blesses Abraham. It's not the other way around. And Abraham actually pays tithes to Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek's here, Abraham's down here. That's his point. And in, in some ways he's saying you could even say that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was still in the loins of his father, Abraham. Okay. Pretty cool argument. And so basically he's saying to summarize this, that Abraham, Melchizedek is superior to Abraham for two reasons. One, Melchizedek blesses Abraham and two, Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. And all of this clearly shows that Melchizedek is superior. Okay. And so that brings us to the second reason Jesus is better. Jesus has a better calling. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. What is he saying here? He's basically saying that if the Levitical priests were good enough to get the job done, there would be no need for another priest to come. And yet, by the, by the inspiration of the Spirit, David says there's coming a greater priest king after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, let me illustrate it for you. If you've got a really great plumber... Okay, Pat Smith, let's say, right? Let's say he's your plumber, okay? If he's getting the job done, you're not gonna fire him and get someone else, right? He's getting the job done. He's crushing it, man. We're gonna keep him. And so if the Levitical priest, he's saying this, if they were getting the job done, why would Jesus bring, or why would God bring another priest? Because they weren't getting the job done. They weren't enough. They were a shadow. The substance had to come. They were a pointer, but the reality had to come. And so that's his argument here. And in Psalm 110, again, we get this promise um, that this this priest king would come named Jesus. And, And notice he says, we know this, that our Lord Jesus, he came from Judah. He didn't come from Levi. So how is he a priest? He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's the greater priest with a greater calling from God that came to fulfill what the Levitical priests could not fulfill. And so he has a better calling. The Levitical priests were called to point to Jesus. And by the way, that's my calling as a pastor, to point to Jesus. That's your calling as a Christian, to point to Jesus, right? We want our lives to not be walls, but windows, that people look through us and see Jesus. That's what we want. We want to spread a passion for the glory of Jesus in Port Austin and beyond. And that's what the priests were called to do, which is a great calling. But Jesus had a better calling because he's what everything was pointing to. I love that. Third, Jesus has a better qualification, Look at verse 15. It says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so earlier we saw that Jesus descends from Judah, not Levi. This would actually disqualify him from serving as a priest in ancient Israel. But Jesus doesn't get his qualifications from bodily descent. Did you see where he gets his? By the power of an indestructible life. How awesome is that? Like, oh, you run into a Levi. Oh, cool. How'd you become a priest? Well, my dad was a priest and his dad was a priest and his dad was a priest. and So I'm just a priest. Oh, okay. Jesus, how did you become a priest? Oh, I just have an indestructible life. Right? Way better. That's awesome. Your life is indestructible? What does that even mean? It means he can go to death for us and then actually conquer death and rise again. This is Jesus. That's how he's qualified to be a priest. Okay? Jesus shared in flesh and blood like us. His brothers. He experienced suffering like us. He then went and died in our place on the cross. But three days later, he rose again. Conquering death, hell, and the grave with his indestructible life. And because of this, he's now a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, way more qualified to be a priest than those Levitical priests. I love that. He says it's not by bodily descent. It's not by some law. It's not by, well, you're a priest by qualification. He actually earned it through his indestructible life. I love that. Verse, or Number four, Jesus has a better hope. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now these verses remind us of verse 12 where the author says, For there is a change in the priesthood. Um, When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Basically what he's saying is the Levitical priesthood was a temporary priesthood with this old covenant, the Mosaic law. But Jesus comes as this true and better priest who sets aside the former to make way for the greater. So here's how you could see the law. Okay, now let me just get this straight. The Old Testament believers, they were saved the same way we're saved, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They looked forward to the Messiah. We look back to the Messiah. But they were saved the same way we're saved. I heard it said this way before, that they were saved on credit because Jesus was going to die. We're saved on debit because he already died and paid the price. It's kind of a cool way to see it. But you could also see the law this way, okay? that Jesus, that the law was the prescription, but Jesus was the medicine. Okay, So if a doctor writes a prescription for your disease, that prescription alone isn't going to save you. It's going to tell you how you need to be saved. It's going to point out all your problems. It's going to show you that you need medicine, you need help. But man, you can't trust in that prescription, that piece of paper to save you. In the same way, the Old Testament, it showed the character of God. It showed how holy he was. It showed how set apart he was. It showed how we're all bankrupt sinners. We could never get to him. And it showed us we need a savior. Really clear. The doctor's orders. You need a savior. And Jesus is that savior. Jesus is that medicine. Jesus is the one who heals us, who forgives us of our sins, who redeems us, who brings us into a relationship with God That's Jesus. And so the Old Testament is is actually set aside now because Jesus fulfilled it. He brings a greater hope now and closely connected to that is number five. Jesus has a better covenant. In verse 20, it says that it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. So there was no promise with these Levitical priests. They were just made priests. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Here we see that Levitical priests were made without this oath. But Jesus is made a priest with this eternal and unshakable promise from God. We looked at that last week a little bit. That the Lord, like when does God swear? Is there a time when God swears? When does God swear? Here, the Lord actually swears and will not change his mind that Jesus is a priest forever. Remember that from last week? That he made this promise, and because of us, he's like, I'm not just going to promise this to you guys. I'm not just going to promise a new covenant that's coming that's going to save you from your sins. I'm actually going to swear by myself that it's going to happen. I love that because whenever you're going to swear, right, you swear on something greater. Like, I swear on my mother's grave or something like that. But Jesus is like, okay, who am I going to swear by? Myself, because there's nothing greater to swear by. And so God makes this oath that Jesus is a priest forever. And and here's why this is so encouraging. All of this means that we don't have to worry about the priesthood being changed. or Or about some greater revelation coming in the future that's going to change all this. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He's one that will never fail or fade. It's an eternal covenant that's bound with this oath. And Jesus takes personal responsibility for this and actually guarantees it. That's what it means on the basis of who he is and what he has done. So he brings this greater covenant. And here's cool about this. Here's what's cool. The next chapter, chapter 8, is all about this greater covenant. The one that was promised and fulfilled by Jesus. And so we're going to look at that in a couple weeks. But next, number 6. Jesus has a better tenure. I love this one. This one's kinda, kind of obvious, but look at 23. The former priests were many in number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, right? They're, well, they're guys and they die. So we need another priest, okay? Um, 24, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. How awesome is that? Consequently, so because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The former priests were many in number because they died, but Jesus continues forever. And so he's a priest forever. He has a much better tenure. Now, can you imagine just for a moment, imagine how difficult it would be for an Old Old Testament believer, a Jew, to go to the temple every day, and they go to this Israelite priest and they go to him, and he's he's like their go-between between them and God, right? And so this man, I mean, he represents you before God. He offers sacrifices on your behalf. He prays for you. He assures you of God's pardon. Okay, imagine that. Like this, this is a pretty big task. And then one day you show up to the temple, and he's dead. He's gone. Oh, you're pretty. Yeah, he yeah he passed away last week. Sorry. Like that would just that would completely shake you. Like the, That's the guy that offered sacrifices for me. That's the guy that prayed for me. That's the guy that told me I was forgiven based on based on this coming Messiah. Like, that's that's my priest. What do you mean he's dead? But that's the reality. And and that's why you don't put your hope in man, by the way. You you put your hope in Jesus. But but these people, they would have just been shaken to their core by this. And it would happen regularly because priests die. But do you see the point of this argument? Jesus doesn't die. Brothers and sisters, every single day that you wake up, you can go directly to the throne because Jesus lives forever and he intercedes on your behalf. He paid it all and now he's there and he remains forever your priest. How awesome is that? He continues forever. His indestructible life keeps him from losing his office. He lives forever as our conquering king and priest. And because of this, because of this, he is able to save us to the uttermost. This means he saves us fully and forever. And not only that, he ever lives to make intercession for us. That right now, as we we speak, Jesus is praying for you if you're a believer today. How incredible is that? Jesus is interceding for you. He's perfuming your prayers, an old Puritan said. And yet it gets better. And notice the final reason that Jesus is a better high priest. Can you believe it? We made it. Number seven. Jesus has a better sacrifice. Look at verse 26. This is my favorite. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And so here's kind of his final argument, which is really like, it's like the final punch that just knocks the Levitical priesthood over and clearly shows that Jesus is better. He's again, he's contrasting the Levitical priests who were sinners with Jesus, this holy, innocent, unstained high priest who is separate from sinners. They had to offer sacrifices daily, both for their sins and for the sins of the people. But Jesus only had to offer one sacrifice once for all. And this sacrifice, this sacrifice was no mere animal that simply represented forgiveness. This was the sacrifice of God himself, the eternal son of God, laying down his life on our behalf. Think about this, the creator, letting the very hands that he created nail him to a cross. The author of life, letting the very lives that he authored take his away. The light of the world, letting the darkness of sin and death bring him to the grave. But only for a moment. He was there, but he rose again. And he's been made perfect forever. I want you to think about this for a moment. Uh, Dr. Kruger made this point. He said, if you were in the Old Testament, again, going back to that, there were four parties involved. OK, when you brought your sacrifice, first, there was God who demands the payment for your sins. OK, then there was man who brings the sacrifice. Then there was the priest who offers the sacrifice on your behalf. And then there's the sacrifice. Right. There's four parties involved. And the last one, man, it was a bummer for that that animal. Right. Like they were just kind of brought into the thing. But look at here how Jesus, all four parties converge into one glorious person. Jesus, as God, demands the sacrifice. He himself demands it based on his holiness and his justice. He can't sweep sin under the rug. It has to be paid for. As man, as truly man, Jesus brings the sacrifice when he walks to the cross. As priest, Jesus offers the sacrifice as he mediates between God and man. And finally, Jesus is the sacrifice himself as he's nailed to the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. What an incredible thought. Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated, exalted, and yet the very one who made the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And now we can shout, it is finished. It is finished. It's done. It's paid in full. That because of Jesus, we can come boldly now into the throne of grace. As I was finishing up this sermon the other day, I just thought, like, how do you close a sermon like this? Like, I know it was a lot of theology, and it was a lot of truth, and some of you may have glazed over a few times, but if you just back up and look at it all, like, it's incredible that Jesus is our great high priest, the perfect high priest who continues forever, who sacrifices himself on our behalf, that because of him, we don't experience wrath. We're sheltered by his grace. We're welcome into the throne room of God. That's our priest, and so it's incredible. And so how do, you, how do you end a message like this? Because of these truths, we should marvel. We should celebrate We should worship. We should be encouraged. We should renew our hope. We should know that we're secure. We should persevere. We should flee to Jesus for refuge. We should cling to Christ. We should draw near to God and so much more. And so as I was just wrestling, like, how do I, God, how do I wrap this one up? Like, it's just, it's, this is us. This is our entire life. Like Jesus, it's all about Jesus. And so I'm just like, here we go. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's how we're ending it. A better prophet, a better priest, a better king, a better savior, a better lord, a better friend, a better comforter, a better satisfier. And so if you walk away with nothing else this week, walk away with this that Jesus is better. When you're tempted to sin this week, will you remember that? That Jesus is better? That his promises are far more superior, that they're far more satisfying, that why would we go to these broken wells for temporary satisfaction when we have this ocean of endless pleasure and joy in Jesus? Man, when you're, when you're feeling weak this, this, this week, when you're, when you're feeling like, man, I can't carry on, will you remember Jesus better? And that he's got that anchor from last week and it's in the heavenlies and it's, it's tied to your soul and he's going to make you persevere? When you're struggling to carry on, will you remember Jesus is better? when you're considering refuge somewhere else, run to Jesus because Jesus is better. Remember this week. Every day, wake up, tell that to yourself, preach that to your soul. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. I need to remember that every single day. Whatever it is you're looking for today, whatever it is you need, know this as a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Jesus is better.